Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America, Capital Region, and Bracebridge Hall have helped thousands of patients in the D.C., Maryland area start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at RCA see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. This is my This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Week in Review. Donald Trump's second impeachment trial began this week in the Senate, and despite the damning case brought by Democrats who accused the former president of being the insider-in-chief, Trump himself was uncharacteristically quiet. Without access to Twitter, Trump was unable to mitigate his disastrous defense performed on his behalf by the bumbling Bruce Castor. Are you listen to it, it speaks for itself. It was disorganized, random, had nothing. They talked about many things, but they didn't talk about the issue at hand. The former Montgomery County, Pennsylvania district attorney's previous claim to fame was his refusal to prosecute Bill Cosby. But the dubious entry on his LinkedIn profile has been eclipsed by his incompetent handling of Trump's defense. The former president was said to be in an absolute rage, an 8 out of 10, according to Maggie Haberman of the New York Times. Not think that was a strong opening argument, and then to have the first attorney admit that he believed the House impeachment managers did a good job also was confusing to a lot of people on the president's team. But yes, Trump was not happy with that performance. He was borderline screaming over what was going on as he was talking to people about this. Predictably, Twitter lit up with broad mockery of Castor's ham-handed defense. That was perhaps the worst argument that I have ever heard from a lawyer. Norm Eisen, Democratic counsel for Trump's first impeachment trial, wrote, Castor's confusing, long-winded defense covered everything from the concept of state pride to the fact he doesn't visit D.C. often and got lost on Tuesday. Even the actor Ice-T, whose familiarity with the legal system comes from his role on Law & Order SVU, weighed in on Castor's disastrous performance, writing, What the fuck is he talking about? As Castor meandered disastrously through his opening argument. He must have got his lawyer off Craigslist. The uh, jury will please disregard counsel's entire opening statement. Donald Trump, though, could only watch the car crash from afar. Stripped of his Twitter access, the orange buffoon has been neutered. By contrast, Trump posted or reposted 142 tweets on the first day of the prosecution's arguments in his Senate impeachment trial last year. A one-day record to that point. Trump's ability to steer public sentiment and counterfactual arguments made by Adam Schiff, 
during last year's impeachment stymied Democrats from the outset. With the defense removed, he must now contend with his own decidedly D-list legal team, led by Castor, who appeared to walk straight off the set of a 1980s Jacobian Myers infomercial for their personal injury services. You've got a legal problem, you're rich, you can afford any attorney. If you're poor, you get free legal aid. But if you're in the middle, you should know about a law firm called the Legal Clinic of Jacoby and Myers. Even Newsmax, which would praise Trump if he took a dump on the Constitution, had to cut away from Castor so their legal analyst, Trump apologist Alan Dershowitz, could complain that he had no idea what they were talking about. There is no argument. I have no idea what he's doing. <clears throat> I have no idea why he's saying what he's saying. The Trump camp claimed that Castor's poor performance was a deliberate tactic to deflate the emotion within the room and deflect attention from what was especially harrowing and moving testimony from Representative Jamie Raskin. Essentially, Team Trump was not prepared for the fact that their client had committed a truly heinous and despicable act in front of the entire nation. I'll be quite frank with you, we changed what we were going to do on account that we thought that the House manager's presentation was well done. And I wanted you to know that we have responses to those things. Furthermore, the evidence from dozens of video clips was extraordinary and frightening and pieced together as a whole created a damning and destructive statement that was far more powerful than Trump's defense team had expected. We're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. Yeah. Yeah. Take the Capitol. Basically, they were screwed. Their guy did it and they had no defense whatsoever. The only option, besides committing harikari with a giant sword, was to dead cat in front of the entire Senate chamber. President Trump's team were disorganized. They did everything they could but to talk about the question at hand. And when they talked about it, they kind of glided over it, almost as if they were embarrassed of their arguments. What's a dead cat, you ask? It's essentially what you do when you're in a situation like Bruce Castor and have to defend a man who did the thing he's accused of doing and there's not only mountains of evidence to prove it, but the president's own words to convict him. So you throw the dead cat on the table by doing or saying something so terrible or perform a task with such great incompetence that everyone starts talking about the thing you just did instead of the topic at hand. Deprived of his Twitter feed, Trump was unable to steer the conversation or deflect public sentiment with his own endless bag of dead cats. He used to be the master of this strategy, and it's something he often deployed to change a news cycle at whim if he didn't want to discuss the topic. Well, not anymore, though. Instead, the former president just shouted at his television like any other mildly psychotic Florida resident. Uh, I guess if you want to commit suicide around here, you gotta do it yourself! Next up to bat was Trump lawyer David Schoen, who instead of delivering an eloquent defense of the indefensible, 
leaned into the crazy and gave a conspiracy-laden opening that was as crazy as Castor had been incompetent. They don't need to show you movies to show you that the riot happened here. We will stipulate that it happened, and you know all about it. This is a process fueled irresponsibly by base hatred by these house managers and those who gave them their charge, and they are willing to sacrifice our national character to advance their hatred and their fear that one day they might not be the party in power. They have a very different view of democracy and freedom from Justice Jackson. First, Schoen complained that he wanted to cry because the impeachment proceedings will hurt the Constitution. Then, Schoen, simply ignoring all of the legal and constitutional points at hand, charged that the trial is a chance by a group of partisan politicians seeking to eliminate Donald Trump from the American political scene and seeking to disenfranchise 74 million plus American votes. On where we stand and why we are here. The singular goal of the House managers and House leadership in pursuing the impeachment conviction of Donald J. Trump is to use these proceedings to disenfranchise at least 74 million Americans with whom they viscerally disagree and to ensure that neither they nor any other American ever again can cast a vote for Donald Trump. And if they convince you to go forward, their ultimate hope is that this will be a shot across the bow of any other candidate for public office who would dare to take up a political message that is very different from their own political point of view as the direction in which they wish to take our country. Well, what does that even mean? Who is being disenfranchised? They're still able to vote, just not for Donald Trump because he provoked a violent and deadly attack on his own government for the first time since 1814 in an attempt to overthrow the government. On and on, showing ranted, sounding like the featured speaker at a Marjorie Taylor Greene dinner party. Democrats want to deprogram Trump supporters. They don't want unity, and they know this so-called trial will tear the country in half, he cried. This trial will tear this country apart, perhaps like we have only seen once before in our history. They want to put you through a 16-hour presentation over two days, focusing on this as if it were some sort of blood sport. And to what end? For healing? For unity? For accountability? Not for any of those. For they surely there are much better ways to achieve each. It is again for pure, raw, misguided partisanship that makes them believe playing to our worst instincts somehow is good. What else did we expect though? Other than protesting the impeachment on vague constitutional grounds, Trump's only defense was to go on offense and play the MAGA victimhood card. Still, he sounded insane. At this point, I would not be surprised if Lynn Wood burst through the Senate chamber like Mel Gibson in Braveheart. You've come to fight as three men. And three men you are. Maybe Sidney Powell can release the Kraken again. I mean... Once again, we are staring into the abyss and listening to nonsense and insanity and being forced to take what these crackpots are saying at face value as if there is somehow equal moral weight on both sides and it's simply a matter of ideology. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone's entitled to a mulligan once in a while. And, and I would hope, I would expect that each of those individuals would take a mulligan on each of those statements because in each instance, 
they're making it deeply personal. They're, they're ceasing to make it about policy. And instead, they're talking about getting up in people's faces and making individuals feel perfectly uh, 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 uncomfortable. And that's not helpful. I think uh, the best way to handle this is to talk about issues rather than individual personalities. According to Giovanni Russinello from the New York Times, it was Trump's use of Twitter, of authoritarian-tinged video content at his rallies, and of public slogans that helped draw the crowd to the Capitol on January 6th. Drawing on that, the impeachment managers were trying to make the case that Trump's use of the bully pulpit is what caused the destruction and death that day. He truly made his base believe that the only way he could lose was if the election was rigged. And senators, all of us know and all of us understand how dangerous that is for our country. Because the most combustible thing you can do in a democracy is convince people that an election doesn't count, that their voice and their vote don't count, and that it's all been stolen. Especially if what you're saying are lies. And prove the case that they have. More than anything, the impeachment managers are using footage of Trump himself and his supporters to allow the defendant to make the case for them. Essentially, they are trying to beat Trump, who has always been a media star more than a politician at his own game. Can't let it happen. Can't let it happen. The Democrats are trying to steal the White House. You cannot let them. What's truly sickening, though, is that none of this really matters. Despite the appearance of one smoking gun after another, Donald Trump will ultimately be acquitted. They need 17 GOP senators to cross the aisle and vote to convict. But the odds are quite long that other than the five who have the fortitude to vote their conscience, the remaining GOP Senate cowards will continue to support a man who has done so much to destroy their party and this nation. It's a MAGA world right now, and with or without Donald Trump, we all have to live with the consequences. And now, for the main event. A crucial weapon in Donald Trump's arsenal has always been his ability to wield conspiracy and misinformation to maximum effect. His ability to convince half the electorate that the election was stolen is just the tip of an iceberg that has emerged as a vast digital netherworld where extremists, right-wing trolls, and violent white supremacists gather, commune, and radicalize vast swaths of this nation's citizenry. That it poses a grave threat to the nation is plain and obvious. The problem is what to do about it and how we put this poison back in the bottle and drop it to the bottom of the ocean. To help me answer these urgent questions, I turn to one of the foremost experts in online extremism, Jared Holt. An investigative journalist and research fellow at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, Holt is focused on disinformation and domestic extremism and the threats they pose to civil societies and democracy in the U.S. And as one expert who focuses on domestic extremism, Jared Holt explained, by all measurable effects, 
This was a far-right extremist, one of the most successful attacks that they've ever launched. They're talking about this as the first stab in a greater revolution. And as indicated by Mr. Holt, their perceived success has given them encouragement to continue and to escalate attacks. While working for the crusading right-wing watch, Holt received death threats after he helped spark the campaign that led to InfoWars' Alex Jones being pulled from Facebook, Spotify, YouTube, and PayPal. Holt spends an inordinate amount of time down the rabbit hole with some of Internet's most disturbing and destructive forces, rooting them out and shining a light into the darkness. And what he says, you can generally take to the bank is truth. So let's listen now to that conversation. On February 3rd, you retweeted the following assertion from Ryan Broderick, who wrote, This violent revolution of America's aging white racist professional class is still a hurdle for some to wrap their heads around. Trump's most violent supporters aren't unemployed hillbillies. They're chiropractors and real estate agents. Explain to my listeners what you meant here and how we've come to frame the narrative around MAGA extremists incorrectly. Discuss this with me. I think historically there's been this misconception that extremists in the United States are, you know, maybe lower class. They're uneducated. They live out in the sticks and they are ignorant. Uh, But what we saw was the crowd that attacked the Capitol on January 6th was made up of people that don't fit that profile. And it's something that extremism researchers like myself have tried to stress repeatedly, but I think was made very clear during that attack, which is that these ideologies are not limited in their appeal. The people that uh, you know, become convinced of them and choose to act on them can be middle to upper class. They can come from places in our society that are deemed, you know, quote unquote, respectable. These are business owners, they're doctors, they're law enforcement. And I think that if we're going to really get a grip on this problem, we have to move past that prior misconception and realize that there isn't a, you know, this isn't just something for the rubes, if you will. This is an ideology that has broader appeal in the GOP. Except don't forget, if you take a look at the media, the media focused much of the video on the insurrection, on individuals that do look like hillbillies. For example, I always refer to the shaman who was wearing the Chewbacca outfit in the bikini. This is not a chiropractor, nor is he a lawyer, a banker, right, or um, any other profession that, that I'm aware of. What's the reason? Obviously, we all know the reason for that. But the thing that always got to me when I started to hear that there was a significant number of former military personnel that were part of that insurrection. Because if I was part of the military, and I had this conversation with so many of the COs at Otisville, where I was incarcerated at, many of them, um, the bulk of them are former military. And I would say, if the president or anybody disrespected my leaders, meaning the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the way that Donald Trump did, if he... If he was denigrated, for example, the intelligence community, the way that he did so badly, I'm not really sure that he's somebody that I would be willing to 
attack the Capitol on. He's not somebody I would be willing to support. Why do you think that's happening? I think that, you know, there's a lot of movements out there, extremist movements that very specifically target former military. Um, You know, a lot of the sales pitch they have to former military officers is that it's not even necessarily that, you know, Donald Trump is this, you know, supposedly, you know, holy figure for military service members or that Donald Trump even has that much of a adherence to the oath of office or anything. It's just that the Democrats are supposedly that bad and that they, you know, want to usher in communist rule. And there's, you know, a whole host of conspiracy theories that are pretty outlandish. But, you know, like a, a group like the Oath Keepers, the militia movement group that was heavily involved in the attack on the Capitol. You know, the big thing, their whole sales pitch is reaching out to law enforcement and veterans and urging them to, quote unquote, keep the oath of office and defend America against whatever, you know, crazy idea of, uh, you know, their own vision of an insurrection that's happening behind the scenes. So I think that, you know, for some military members, that is a, you know, kind of sexy narrative to feel like even though they're out of service, they can still, you know, go and act in this militant way to, quote unquote, defend America. Sure. I would. That's exactly what they should be doing. They should go try to be a part of an insurrection for a president that walked away from Vietnam by claiming that he had bone spurs in his foot. Of course, he can't remember which foot that he had the bone spur removed from. I can tell you I had a bone spur in my left shoulder. It's why I had 60 days additional before which I had to self-surrender to Otisville. And I can tell you exactly where the incisions were made, and I can tell you exactly which arm it was. And I'll be able to do that even when I'm 100. So the notion that they're supposed to follow this man simply because he's the president, despite the fact, again, that he disrespects military, he disrespects law enforcement, and he himself didn't have the courage in to you know to stand with them during wartime. I, I don't understand what what they're doing. And yeah, I get it. You know, they're being um brainwashed very much like I was when I was at the Trump organization. But I again I just don't fully understand what they could possibly be thinking and why. Yeah, and it's it's it is hard for you know, rational people to understand because a lot of this train of thought, the kind of thing that drove people, you know, to TC and then into the Capitol is not logical and it's not rational. A lot of these people were exploited by people like Donald Trump and his allies in his orbit into believing this whole web of conspiracy theories and lies. Um, so, you know, they are not operating in a sort of grounded version of reality. They are operating in one that was cooked up by a scam artist to produce a certain result. And he got what he wanted. But on February 2nd, you wrote, far-right groups are in a state of splinter after the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Eventually, and probably fairly soon, they will reconvene in new contexts. The question before us is whether we want to make sure we're adequately prepared for the next chapter. 
Unpack what you mean here about how they splintered and why and how you see them reemerging in the future, because that's really scary to me. Right. Uh, Since the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, a lot of the more organized groups, at least, or organized movements that participated in that attack or animated that attack have come under increased scrutiny from federal law enforcement, uh, national security uh, agencies. Uh, You've had you know, some infighting going on, deplatforming from various portions of the internet. So the movement as it existed as this sort of cohesive force pushing forward in the days leading and, you know, heading up towards January 6th has been fairly destabilized. Um, It has splintered. Groups are fighting with each other. Um, People are losing trust in the broader conspiracies and plans that were supposed to play out where Trump was going to somehow remain president. But, you know, even though they are kind of splintered and in disarray right now, I I like to remind people of what happened after the 2017 Unite the Right White Supremacist rally in Charlottesville. After that rally where, uh, unfortunately, a woman was murdered uh, via vehicle at the hands of a neo-Nazi, the extremist right, what we knew at the time as the quote-unquote alt-right, splintered in the same way but it was only a matter of months before they started kind of putting the pieces back together from what was ultimately like a pr and legal nightmare for their movement and then we had sort of a 2.0 version of the alt-right come to life so right now as we're recording this we're kind of in one of those flux periods where a lot of these groups are having their members arrested they're facing scrutiny public condemnation So they're a bit splintered and trying to figure out what the next steps are, but there will be next steps. These movements, these ideologies don't, you know, you can't just arrest them off the face of the planet. Uh, They will eventually become more cohesive again. And what I hope uh, desperately is that the lessons that we take away from January 6th can be used in a way to better prepare us for this next wave so that people don't die next time. I'll tell you, I I saw it a little bit different. Your tweet really gave me pause to think about whether you're right or what I was thinking could potentially happen. And I'm generally not a positive thinker. I want to be really clear about that. I always prepare for the worst. That's what That's what I think made me successful working for Donald for so long. You always, you don't think about the best outcome. You always think about the worst and then work it backwards that way. But I saw a lot of these groups, these insurrection groups, extremely disappointed with Trump because what he promised them, they clearly did not get. They actually thought they were going to stop the steal. They were going to stop the Senate from doing what their constitutional duty was, and that's to declare the victory to Joe Biden. They thought that Donald Trump was going to drop like Jesus from the heavens, right? And Or the Messiah or whatever, whoever you believe in, was going to drop from the heavens, and he was going to stand in front of everybody with a big glow and an aura around him and say, I am here, we are here, and we did it. Well, they didn't do anything. Actually, you're right. Um, Not only did they not do anything, People got hurt. Um, some were killed. Um, you know, on as Trump would say, on both sides, you had police officer who was killed. You had uh, insurrectionists that were killed. 
a lot of, lot of injury that went on here. So they're extremely disappointed in the outcome of Donald Trump's um, insurrection coup. Guys like the Proud Boys got up and they are now blaming Trump personally that Donald Trump told them that he's the one who told them to go to the Capitol. And many of them, when they were there, whether it was on the telephone, which I just find, again, disgraceful behavior, screaming that the president told us to come. We're here because the president invited us. How do you see the difference? You know, I I think that, you know, your perspective and like what I'm seeing isn't mutually exclusive. I, I definitely think the disappointment in Trump has also played a huge factor in this. You know, Trump invited everybody to D.C., kicked up the rhetoric to 11, played this like very dystopian video ahead of the speech, uh, you know, that uh, historians and fascism have likened to fascist propaganda and then pointed everybody towards the Capitol. And then, you know, as the time went on and they were attacking the Capitol, Trump just like camped out and watched TV and apparently, you know, from reporting was apparently kind of confused why other people weren't as excited about what was happening. And then eventually, I don't know if it was his lawyer or somebody got to him and he had to, you know, go on video and say, you know, we, what happened was ter you know, was terrible. We love you, but please stop. Uh, and, kind of hinted at, you know, the fact that he wasn't going to do anything to prevent any sort of prosecutions against the people who participated in the attack. And then after that, he just kind of dipped out of public view for a little bit. So I think a lot of these groups, you know, engaged in this attack thinking they, you know, they had a variety of reasons for doing so. You know, the militias have a different reason for doing this than the QAnon people have a different reason than the Proud Boys, etc. But like ultimately they did it all for Trump and then Trump just kind of gave up because the water got too hot. You know, he crossed the line and once it was clear that, you know, there he didn't have much as far as plausible deniability goes, uh, you know, he kind of just put his head down and let everybody who committed this terrible thing for him, you know, get run over by the bus. By the way, isn't that typical for Donald Trump? Just had they looked at and seen what this orange-crusted, bloviated fool did to me, they should have seen for themselves that he will abandon them the same way he abandoned me and others. Yeah, I was going to say they should have just talked to you. Right. <laughs> Donald Trump cares for no one or anything other than himself. Had he retaken power, had there been a coup, sure, he would have let the insurrectionists go. But now, you remember go during the campaign, he turned around and he said, you know, um, if you punch that guy in the face, don't worry about it. I'll pay your legal bills. Rest assured, that's bu I call bullshit on that one. Donald Trump doesn't like to pay legal bills, even the ones that he actually owes. But this is his behavior. This is that code that I tried to speak to people about. It wasn't just that one individual that Trump was talking to. He was putting out a much broader um, scope to individuals who were listening. And again, at that time, he was covered 24-7 by the media. So he was calling out to anybody, if somebody is not a pro-Trumper and that they disrespect a Trump rally, 
I want you to punch them. I want you to attack them. But don't worry about it. I'll take care of you. That's called the Trump lie. Yeah, and extremist groups like the Proud Boys have even, you know, in the way that they talk to each other, the way they react to news, you know, that's how they interpret it, too. It's not just your take on it. You know, whenever Trump during the presidential debate said, stand down, stand by, I remember uh, Joe Biggs, who was was since arrested for his role in the Capitol attack, uh, a Proud Boys figure said, you know, essentially the same thing that, you know, Trump basically just gave us permission to go kick some ass. And, you know, that that is how it comes across. And it's hard for me to imagine that, you know, even if we're going to give the ultimate benefit of the doubt and say Trump didn't realize that's the effect the words would have, that he was never told at any point that, you know, his words were being interpreted that way. And he certainly definitely made no effort at all to you know change the way he was talking well let me tell the senate that he knew exactly what he was doing he knew exactly the language he was using and he knew exactly what the result was going to be hi folks michael cohen here and we've got an amazing sponsor for this episode the jordan harbinger show things can get pretty intense discussing american politics So if you need a break from the news cycle and want to hear incredible storytelling that is both fascinating and actionable, you have to check it out. The show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes you'll find interesting since you're a fan of this show. Check out Tuesday's episode with Remy Savy, who will teach you to find your dream job. And I recently waded into his deep back catalog to listen to an amazing February 2018 interview with Frank Abinali, the master forger and scammer whose story was the basis for Catch Me If You Can. I also listened to a recent episode where Jordan talks with science writer Eric Vance and discusses the science of the brain and suggestibility, which left me God smacked and wondering how times I have been deceived in this manner. All in all, fascinating stuff there's an episode for everyone though no matter what you're into the show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia jordan's also done an episode all about birth control and how it can alter the partners we pick and how going on and off the pill can change elements of our personalities the podcast covers a lot But one constant is his ability to pull useful pieces of advice from his guests. I promise you, you'll find something useful that you can apply to your own life, whether that's an actionable routine change that boosts your productivity or just a slight mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. We really enjoy this show and we think you will as well. Search for the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's Harbinger, H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. But Jared, I'm fascinated by a tweet that you wrote last week. And you wrote, something I try to stress when I talk about QAnon is that there is a micro-industry built around it. It's a self-sustaining with its own media, online hangouts, vendors, dystopian art scene, believe it or not. They don't operate in our reality. They live in a crowdsourced version. Describe some of this crowdsourced reality and who and what 
are its leading cultural purveyors. Yeah, the crowdsourced reality that I talked about in, in that tweet is, is something that I feel is kind of missing from a lot of conversations about QAnon, which is that, you know, the in the same way that like a lot of the beliefs that drove the capital attack aren't rational and logical, QAnon is certainly not rational or logical. The way that the QAnon movement, which is, you know, it's a very decentralized movement, it is a very self-contained movement, you know, members of the community, whether their own social media influencers, their own quote-unquote researchers, their vendors, their entertainment sources, like all of these different forces are able to take news events and sort of create almost like a very perverted kind of marketplace of ideas, if you will, you know, and throw out all these different competing explanations for, you know, why was Biden inaugurated when Trump was supposed to take over? And through this, like, almost like parody of the marketplace of ideas, something will usually kind of rise out of the ashes. And that becomes the, uh, you know, kind of mainstream thought that keeps everything going. Like, as we record this now, sort of the next date, you know, moving the the carrot in front of the horse a little bit further is March 4th. It's based on a weird sovereign citizen uh, theory, which is kind of even obscure in the sovereign citizen movement itself, that uh, because of some historical like incorporation of the United States that, you know, Trump will actually be inaugurated on March 4th. It's complete baloney. It's amazing how they just continue. But I do want to ask you, Jared, of all of the groups that have emerged over the past few years, from the um, Boogaloos to QAnon and beyond, who keeps you up at night in terms of the severity and the insanity of their ideology, as well as their willingness and ability to commit violence against the public? Yeah, what keeps me up at night is uh, a movement that doesn't get as much press as, you know, the QAnon shaman or the Proud Boys of the world, but it's just the militia movement in this country. There are unlawful militias in every single state. It's illegal in every single state. And, you know, these are people that don't spend, you know, they certainly have an online presence, but they also have like a very physical presence, you know, where the Proud Boys might spend their weekend going to a rally and trying to get into fist fights with uh, Black Lives Matter or Antifa. The militia movement guys go out to the gun range and practice using, you know, heavy firearms. So, you know, if these movements are organized and pointed towards a direction, they could do some very severe harm. And again, it's another uh, movement that draws from former law enforcement, former military, and even gets buy-in occasionally that we see from law enforcement in the areas where they're based. So I think that is like way up there on the severity scale and the kind of imminent danger scale if things go sideways. Right. And take that and then couple that with individuals who are parties to that, that have former military training. And now what they do is they basically become the drill sergeant and they start running them through exercise that they learned, you know, in law enforcement and military. And it, yeah, you're right. It's very dangerous. And the firepower that they're able to get their hands on based upon the, you know, different state laws as it relates to these type of firearms. It's yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that one. They um they keep me up at night as well. 
But on January 29th, you actually wrote an op-ed for Medium that argued that deplatforming was effective in combating online extremism, but it was by no means a cure in that many of those deplatformed will migrate to alternative platforms and continue to spread their message. Instead, you describe a more holistic, multifaceted approach. Discuss this with me and my listeners, what needs to happen to successfully scrub our digital word, um, a digital word free of this stuff. So, you know, uh, when these different groups like QAnon or militias or Proud Boys or et cetera, you know, get kicked off of mainstream sites like Twitter and Facebook, they don't just stop using the Internet. They often go search out alternative platforms before Parler went offline. Parler was a place like that where people kicked off these mainstream sites would congregate. But, uh, you know, going forward now that Parler's offline, they're kind of running around and kicking the tires and taking all these new smaller platforms for test drives. Eventually, they'll coalesce into a central platform because they need the numbers to make it appealing. Um, but any sort of fix that we're going to have to extremism or online radicalization is going to have to think further than deplatforming. It's kind of the gut punch for people who want to mitigate harm, and it does have a lot of short-term benefits. But it doesn't make extremism go away, uh, go away, and sometimes it can even harden people in their more conspiratorial beliefs that tech companies and governments are out to get them and silence them for some reason. So. I think any kind of approach to combating extremism and disinformation is going to have to be holistic. You are going to have to kind of take it down to a community level um, and also kind of a societal level, too, where not there isn't a magic like piece of legislation that is going to fix this. You know, breaking up Facebook wouldn't fix all of this. It's just like part of it is that America as a country has to you know, swallow a tough pill and stare itself in the mirror for a few minutes and try to really dissect what's gone wrong and then work on a collective scale to try to fix that or, or right some of the wrongs and, uh, you know, get back on course to something that's a bit more sustainable and healthy where people can, uh, you know, live openly and safely. Well, I, and I agree. However, what you also have to look at is companies like Facebook, and I don't want to just pick on Facebook because it's all of the social media platforms. Basically, they have not done their job in terms of the product that they're, that they're selling, right? If this was a vehicle or some other type of, um, of an item, you would have a defect in design. The fact that that platform allows misinformation and disinformation is something that should not be there. And what I believe that they should do is that they should start investing some of the money that they're so fast to give out to their shareholders. They should invest money back into their product in order to ensure that those defects are taken care of. There is no reason in the world why there should be the number of bots, for example, on Twitter. There has to be a way to avoid. You have to be an individual in order to open up that account. And yet there are millions and millions of bots and Twitter is constantly scrubbing them. I go up and down five, 10,000 followers at a clip, right? The same thing with Facebook. They have all of these fake 
these fake um, companies and these fake um, people that are on there. And all these people do is they actually, as you were talking about before, they try to bring in these disenfranchised individuals to a platform or to a room and get them going. And then they direct them to another, which is probably the real site. And again, it's all about misinformation and disinformation. And I do really believe the social media companies have an obligation to all of us as users. One, stay away from our privacy. <laughs> that's something that's now up, that's up there. Get, stay, stay out of our business, right? Our privacy. Stop with this geofencing that when you walk past a restaurant, that they know exactly where you are and they send you a coupon directly to your text message, right? This is, this is, I didn't sign up for that and I don't want it. But something that Trump realized, and again, that's why I say he's a clever son of a bitch. He realized Twitter's going to throw me off. You think you're going to censor me? Well, fuck you. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Parler. And Parler's looking for Twitter-type numbers in order to what? To increase their stock price, increase the value of their company. Trump knows this very well. But he's not interested in his comments or the ability to drive people to that website in order to see what he's saying. He wants a piece of the company. And it's not a small piece. And Parler was willing to give him, if I'm not mistaken, I think I read 40% of the company simply by coming there and keeping his platform only on parlor. Can you imagine this? You know that the man is the king of disinformation and misinformation, and yet you're offering him 40% of your company. This, this is where government has to get involved. So that's their job. Their job is to protect us. That's the way I feel. Yeah, and I, I mean, a lot of that just boils down to the fact that the way social media companies are designed at their core, the profit structure is just so perverse. You know, someone like you, Michael, or I, we are not the customers of a Facebook or a parlor. We are the product, right? And the way that you keep the line going up and the shareholders happier is by extracting more value out of each user and that often comes in the form of exploiting data collection and the best way to exploit data collection is to make sure that the people that are on your website are as plugged into the website as possible and one of the tricks that they've used to keep that going is by turning a blind eye to hyperpartisan, uh inflammatory and extreme content uh you know, and disinformation and just letting people get worked up, get into fights on the platform, et cetera. And just, you know, they have kind of sat back and kicked their feet up, counting the stacks of cash while the world burns around them. And I, you know, it, I think going forward, you know, forcing some accountability and some change there is crucial. But, you know, kind of what I was getting at with that op-ed and what I said earlier, just a minute ago is that like part of our job now has to be playing cleanup for all the years that these companies just fucked us over and you know there needs to be some accountability there but the fact of the matter is like you know you can't it, the this poison is already in the american mind right it's already in the politics it's already in this in the society so as much as we need to cut the poison off, there's still going to be a degree to which we have to undergo some treatment and healing. 
All right, and I want to be very clear about this. I am not saying that we should throw the First Amendment away. People have a right to express their views, and it makes no difference if they are the alt-right or the alt-left. That, that's not for me. And yes, there are others that will follow on both sides. I'm just talking about the, as you just said, the 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 craziness, the the um, inciting of of riots. I mean, there has to be, I, and I don't have the answer to it. This is really for smarter people than I and people involved in these tech companies. They need to figure out how their platforms are actually being used. Uh, I mean, I don't believe that they should be entitled to create chat rooms about attacking the Capitol. I mean, I just, I, I, don't, I don't care what anybody says. Is it a First Amendment violation? I'm sure there are constitutional lawyers that will argue with me about it all day long. But if that, the same way you can't scream fire in a crowded theater, you shouldn't be able to have a chat room in order to overthrow or to try to take and kill the governor of Michigan. I just don't see it. But Jared, I want to jump right into this. One of the questions that I always ask my guests um, recently is where they were when the Capitol was being stormed, as it's my opinion that this day will be remembered akin to 9-11 and other national tragedies, where we will all remember the day and what we were doing when the rioters ransacked Congress. So I asked this, where were you? And was the violence something that you were expecting based on your understanding of how these groups organize online? And the chatter coming from these various sources. So I was uh, here at home with uh, my dog and my fiance, and I had multiple computers and devices open uh, because, as somebody who does research in this space, um, I had you know every indication and signal that something truly awful was going to happen and we wanted to make sure that we recorded and archived as much of it as possible so that you know there could be a function of accountability that happened after whatever was going to happen happened um you know leading up to the attack on the capitol on january 6th at dfr lab we were inside these online communities, inside these chat rooms, really looking at it firsthand and gathering raw materials and intelligence products. And, you know, it, what surprised me about January 6th is that everything that the people in these online communities and these forums had fantasized about doing came true. You know, oftentimes in these communities, you get a lot of individuals who log on and there's a lot of fluster. You know, it's extremist communities online. So the content is so extreme a lot of the time. But, you know, these logistical discussions about surrounding the Capitol, these maps going around of different access points into the Capitol, all of it spelled bad news. But whenever they were able to successfully breach the perimeter of the Capitol, uh, you know, it all came true. And I guess that it was kind of the most shocking part about it for me is because I was watching the very worst case scenario that had been sort of playing out online manifesting itself into the physical space with deadly consequence. Yeah. Seems like every day, everywhere, practically everyone is connected on their devices. In fact, the average person was connected almost seven hours a day last year. And 64% of adults admit to taking online risks for convenience. 
And all that browsing, sharing, banking and shopping makes life easy. But it can also expose personal information, making you vulnerable to cyber criminals. There's a lot to your digital life that can put you at risk. That's why Norton 360 with LifeLock makes it easy to help keep it safe. With device security to help block hackers from devices. A VPN for online privacy and LifeLock identity theft protection to help you keep what's yours, yours. No one can prevent all cybercrime or identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But with the all-in-one protection of Norton 360 with LifeLock, you can be less worried about becoming another stat. You better believe that I use LifeLock, and I have for years, to protect my information from the prying eyes of Trump spies and other trolls looking to expose my personal information or cause me financial damage. Do yourself a favor and protect yourself. It's that easy. Save 25% or more off your first year at Norton.com slash Cohen. That's Norton.com slash Cohen to save 25%. Well, answer me this then. On February 5th, Jay Rosen tweeted, The inside game, press, Politico, Punchbowl, Saliza, etc., says civil war, battle for the soul, identity crisis in the GOP. I say no. It's a Trumpist party with a radicalized base, comfortable with meeting counter-majoritarian and counterfactual, dissenters to be primaried. Now, you agreed with this thesis by writing this. There is no civil war. I know it's a tempting narrative, but it's not based on anything real. Explain to my listeners what you guys meant and why you don't believe the GOP is at war with itself for its soul and its identity. You know, I, I think if the GOP was really trying to moderate itself or reclaim some bit of uh, honor or agenda or dignity that it lost during the Trump era, it must be doing so, you know, in private. You know, they must be, you know, forgetting to open their mouths when they do it because they're as tempting as it is to try to explore this question of like what happens to the GOP in a post-Trump era? I agree. That's a very interesting question. It's going to be really interesting to see. But like that question should not be framed as a narrative of something that is going on because although researchers and journalists and concerned members of the public are certainly wondering what the answer to that question is, it doesn't seem that a lot of Republicans on the Hill or Republicans in right-wing media have been giving almost any thought to that question. Instead, we're seeing a parade forward. Uh, you have figures like Marjorie Taylor Greene talking about crazy shit like Jewish space lasers starting wildfires and QAnon and et cetera, and receiving you know, very minimal pushback from the Republican Party in the House. And uh, you have, you know, people on right wing media. I think I've heard the words cancel culture more in the last month than maybe I had in the prior three. It's it's the new thing. Any sort of consequence, any sort of accountability for the bad actors involved in the attack on our democracy. Well, now you're canceling them. And, you know, we should all just move on from this and accept, you know, there is if the GOP really was trying to get back its soul and get back its identity at any sort of tangible scale, 
And I should note there are exceptions to this. There are some Republicans who do seem to have a spine, although they are in the minority. Uh, we would see them embrace accountability, and you know, we'd see more uh, more of an apologetic tone. I think. Oh, there's no apology that's no. going to come out, and there's no apology that's going to come out of Marjorie Taylor Greene until they hold her. You know, they put her ass right to the fire, and. Um, I, I, I love the concept of, you know, Jews have a laser, you know, up in the sky and where she comes up with this thing. It's it, it's amazing to me that she was able to to win her seat. I mean, I think she's batshit crazy. And I think that there's a responsibility to remove people who are batshit crazy. It's one thing to have a difference of opinion. It's another thing to be batshit crazy. And anybody that thinks that Jews have a laser uh, up there in the sky that's pointed at any individual citizen. I mean, she's like, there's no words for that level of stupidity and crazy. But do you think that Biden understands that he's governing not against the GOP of 1992 or even the obstructionist Congress of 2010, but rather this new radicalized entity that doesn't even recognize that he is the president? You know, it remains to be seen. If he doesn't understand that yet, I figure he's probably going to learn pretty fucking fast. I, you know, as soon as he tries to negotiate anything and has to deal with the Matt Gates and Jim Jordans of the world, uh, I, I think, or at least I would hope it. Or the Mitch McConnell's. Yeah, I, I would hope it would become obvious pretty quick. Yeah, I think. Look, I think Joe is going to do a great job. Um, I think Mitch McConnell needs to start understanding that the GOP got its ass handed to them. They now have lost the House, right? They, they've they lost the Senate. They've lost the White House because that crazy fringe of Trump is not going to be enough in order to keep them in power. And listen, that's what Mitch McConnell is. He's a power-hungry motherfucker and nothing more than that. That's all that he is. That's all he cares about is his power. He'd sit there and kiss Trump's ass on Tuesday and on Friday after they bang the gavel and they say the election is now closed. He's already sitting trying to find somebody, you know, somebody else's ass to kiss. That's just Mitch McConnell. It's all about him. It's all about his power. And yeah, he di he didn't give a shit about anything that Trump did. He was just like smiling and laughing as they crammed, you know, right wing judges into the federal judiciary. That was Mitch McConnell's project. You know, it, to, to think that he gives even the slightest care in the world over the, you know, egregious things that Trump has done and is now going to be on trial in the Senate for is utterly laughable. Yeah, it is. In all of the discussion of the Proud Boys, one name has been conspicuously absent, and that's Gavin McGinnis, who created the group and was the early co-founder of Vice. I'm curious what you've heard of his affiliation with the group since January 6th. So Gavin, a while back, uh, I believe this was in 2018, although my perception of time is a little warped uh, because I've been inside so long during the coronavirus. Um, he, after some Proud Boys were arrested and charged with uh, criminal activity spawning from one of his uh, public speaking events in New York City, he formally, I put that in huge air quotes, resigned from the group as its leader. Um, but there has been uh, some suggestion and 
I think, fairly plausible uh, evidence that Gavin is still in somewhat regular communication with different members and leaders in the group. And certainly rank and file Proud Boys still look to him as some sort of authoritative voice uh, for their cause. Uh, Gavin McInnes was originally misidentified as being at the Capitol, um, but it turned out that was a different guy that just looks really a lot like him. You know, it's easy to mix people up when they have like the same facial hair sometimes, but you know, he, he wasn't at the Capitol and he's kind of been in the background for a while. Okay. So then last week on Maya Culpa, we discussed how Kyle Rittenhouse had disappeared and authorities could not locate him and have actually ordered a warrant for his arrest. Since this summer, he has become an extreme right martyr and was seen flashing white supremacist gang signs and partying with local Proud Boy chapters, right? Then you have Mike Lindell and Silver Spoon's actor Ricky Schroeder paid his $2 million bail. Now, I'm curious if you've heard anything from your sources in regards to his whereabouts or if he has gone underground and is in hiding by more extreme white supremacist groups. You know, the last that I've heard is that, uh, you know, they... Our, his legal team is in the process of, you know, trying to reconcile the fact that people apparently just don't know where Kyle Rittenhouse is. You know, their argument was that he it was unsafe for him to have his uh, location publicly known, whether it's in court records or et cetera. Um, as far as being sheltered by extremist groups, I haven't heard that, you know, he's at a Proud Boys compound or anything like that. Uh, but I do think it's really interesting that far-right extremist groups, because he shot and killed, uh, you know, individuals that were affiliated with what we call like Antifa or, you know, anarchist far-left causes, that they adopted him as a kind of martyr figure you know they think what he did was great because he you know put bullets through the flesh of people that they view as their ultimate political enemies and for that any sort of you know just cause or you know self-defense law didn't really matter uh, you know ultimately he was celebrated for shooting and killing people that they view as their political enemies well what about then in your research and your reporting have you come across any studies that discuss the neuropsychological reasoning around the spread and propagation of conspiracy and misinformation like QAnon? Is there some correlation between, say, smartphone usage, social media, and dopamine release from the reward center of the brain? Meaning, like, do folks literally get addicted to this? And is that part of the reason why all this stuff is spreading? Uh, you know, I, I can't speak to any specific studies, but I do think it's a really interesting question to try to broach, which is that social media and, you know, the ability to pick up a device out of our pocket and connect to this global Internet at any point in time has completely restructured our brain at a speed that, like, our animal bodies are not prepared to handle. So we struggle. Uh, you know, these apps are designed to exploit our desires for gratification, for social acceptance. And they're also designed to keep us on the platform as long as possible. So it's like a very gross, manipulative relationship that we have with social media and 
other platforms on the internet. So I think that, you know, the addictive quality of social media with social media's, you know, kind of competing uh, incentive to get you to stay on longer and feeding you more extreme content and directing you, you know, you watch one QAnon video and now it wants you to join the QAnon group. Uh, you know, I think that's a huge factor in the way that this has spread because the the line between our real lives and our digital lives is almost you know all but completely blurred at this point and if there's like nefarious stuff happening on one side of that it's not a huge surprise that eventually the consequences of that will spill over into the other side of it yeah i can tell you when i was in otisville obviously there are no cell phones there's no internet and you know 14 months being without that it really does actually make you shake so yeah i totally agree with you that our personal lives and our digital lives have become so intermeshed with one uh, another that it's very hard to discern one from the other yes and if our digital lives become so poisonous then our physical lives our quote-unquote real lives uh you know, are going to have very severe consequences as a result. And hence why the social media companies need to start investing money back into their company and to prevent the things that like happened on uh, January 6th. But, you know, the beauty about this show is I get, Jared, opportunities to speak to intelligent people like yourself, people with knowledge that's very different than the knowledge that I possess. And as I'm preparing for these shows, I'm actually learning a lot. Because I'll tell you, I recently learned that the hashtag stop the steal actually dates back to 2017. I didn't, I really didn't know this, that stop the steal actually goes back to 2017 and that it's well-funded and it's well-organized. Can you walk my listeners through its origins, its growth, and who was actually behind it from an organizational standpoint and how it helped to organize the January 6th riots? Yeah, we've actually got a huge timeline piece. I mean, I put it in a PDF and it was like 70 pages uh, that should be coming out probably by the time this episode's out on justsecurity.org. But, uh, you know, Stop the Steal was a Roger Stone joint. Um, you know, Roger Stone being the uh, person who fancies himself as an infamous dirty trickster. Uh, it, it spawned after the 2016 election to contest the uh, results of the election that showed Hillary Clinton had a popular vote lead. Now, a popular vote lead doesn't do so much to help uh, in a country with an electoral college, but it did bruise the ego of Trump. And there was this effort to try to delegitimize that popular vote lead. So Stop the Steal took place then. Uh, critics of the movement uh, accused Roger Stone of using that movement to try to disenfranchise uh, the votes of non-white people in urban areas. Stone denied that, but Stone is a liar as well. Stop the Steal kind of had a rebirth moment in 2018 in the gubernatorial race in Florida. Uh, that was a close race that, uh, you know, came down to just a small uh, margin of votes. So then Roger Stone, with his associates and protégés, uh, deployed a campaign again in Florida to try to delegitimize votes coming out of non-white urban populations. So, you know... This is 
a movement organized by people like Roger Stone, his protégés like Aldi, uh, Alexander, Jack Posobiec, people in the orbit like Steve Bannon, uh, you know, Mike Caputo. Mike Caputo, Mike Flynn was in on it to some degree. It's like, you know, this is a movement that has a lot of connections and with a lot of connections comes a lot of money comes a lot of resources and it comes with a lot of you know the ability to gather support and momentum behind it so let me ask you this because again as i was learning about this stop the steal um going back to 2017 a central figure that constantly pops up in the conversation about the extreme right is this guy jack posobiec um i mean there are rumors of him passing on hacked Russian intelligence, and being this all-around nefarious operator. Help me to separate hype from fact and explain to my listeners and to me who this guy is and why we should be worried about him. Yeah, Jack Posobiec is unfortunately a guy who lives up to a lot of the worst hype about him. Uh, Jack Posobiec was a Game of Thrones blogger. He used to work uh, in the national security apparatus before he got canned. Uh, and he cut his teeth in the pro-Trump movement as a commenter on the Donald, which was a Reddit sub forum that was very pro-Trump, very extreme, very, uh, just a very strange place online. Um, you know, Jack was able to springboard himself through the embrace of like white supremacy and neo-fascism into being this controversial, you know, eclectic online figure that drew a lot of curiosity. He was heavily involved in the attack on the family of Seth Rich, uh, the former DNC staffer who was murdered on his way home from a bar one night and, you know, became the center of conspiracy theories meant to attack Hillary Clinton. He, uh, you know, has collaborated with neo-fascists. He has hired neo-Nazis as cameramen. Uh, worked for all kinds of far-right causes. And, uh, you know, what you referenced just a minute ago was he was a huge pusher of Macron leaks, which uh, turned out to be a Russian intelligence operation. He was, you know, the probably the primary liaison between this material appearing on white supremacist sites and him kind of blowing it up into the larger Twitter sphere. So this is a guy now who works for One America News Network, uh, which is one of Trump's new favorite outlets. And, you know, and we didn't even get into Pizzagate, right? I, I mean, this is a guy who has no adherence to the truth. His only adherence is to just be a dirty rat fucker with disinformation and lies and is constantly coming up with new ways to lie to people. And he does this with the buy-in and support of top GOP activists and politicians. And who's the worst? Who's the worst GOP activist or politician that's dealing with the likes of a Jack Posobiec? You know, like Matt Gates is very involved. You know, I have no, I have no regard for Matt Gates. I think he's a scumbag. I think he's an absolute piece of shit. The fact that he was sitting there trying to do Trump's bidding, walking around when I was standing there before the House Oversight Committee, walking back, and he's not even involved in that committee. He was begging another GOP individual to give him their time so that he could say lies, 
right, on television so he can get his, you know, he can get his five seconds of fame and that he can show Trump what a loyal schmuck that he is. And, you know, then what's great is the fact that I had learned, and this was through government, I had learned that it was Sean Hannity that actually wrote the apology. I put that Twitter um, out there of his of his text message to me and then the one that Sean Hannity sent to him because he didn't give a shit about what he was doing. All he cared about was losing his law license. And I understand that. I lost my law license simply because Donald Trump got his pecker pulled by a porn star, which is my last podcast with Stormy Daniels, right? But I have no regard for the likes of people like Matt Getz, like Mark Meadows, like Jim Jordan, all these guys that continue to enhance Trump's lies and misinformation and disinformation. But I will tell you another thing that scares me a lot. I read an estimate recently that 10%, I mean, this really fucking blew me away, right? And you got to tell me if I'm right or I'm wrong on this, that there's an estimate of 10% of the U.S. population believes in or sympathizes with QAnon, which means close to 30 million Americans have been brainwashed in their basements. Now, first of all, is this an accurate assessment? And secondly, how will this manifest in our electoral system over the coming years? And will we see more violence as a result? You know, uh, 10%, I think, uh, sympathizing with QAnon is probably doing a lot of work in that 10%. But even then, that is terrifying. What it means is that, you know, QAnon is not a bipartisan conspiracy theory. It is a right-wing conspiracy theory that serves Republicans. So what that means is that QAnon and all the different conspiracy theories and like craziness that comes with it has established some form of presence in the GOP base. That means that there, you know, if it's 10% of the US population, it's probably even a higher percentage of Republican voters, given that not the entire population is, uh, you know, registered Republican voter. So what I think is, you know, in the electoral system going forward, this could potentially be a cause that, you know, even if politicians aren't uh, you know, giving a shout out to Q specifically or verbatimly, uh, that will potentially see Republican politicians engaging more with these kind of outlandish conspiracy theories, either winking and nodding at them or, you know, regurgitating some of them themselves to try to activate and animate that, you know, conspiratorial base in their own elections. And while the number of QAnon followers that are sort of predispositioned towards violent action is a fringe within the fringe, right? Uh, it becomes a numbers game eventually. You know, if one out of 100,000 QAnon believers has some sort of, uh, you know, pretense for violence or some risk of violence, if the number of QAnon believers and sympathizers goes from 100,000 to a million, now you don't have one guy, you've got 10 guys. If it goes from a million to 10 million, then you've got 100 guys that have these dispositions. So the more QAnon grows and the less pushback it receives from the base that it's infecting, the more dangerous the situation we can find ourselves in. Well, then think about it this way. At the state level, the GOP has become the party of Marjorie Taylor Greene and a haven for conspiracists and Trumpian ideology. 
Discuss with me the ramifications of this type of extremism on voting and other basic rights. And who is controlling the strings at a national level organizing this extremism incursion? Yeah, I think the infection of Republican parties on the state level with this kind of ideology is actually much more concerning because at least – when it comes to uh, voter access, when it comes to state laws, the type of things that impact people perhaps more immediately than federal legislation does, a lot of this is decided at the state level and even sometimes the local level, like a city council. There is less accountability in state and local government than perhaps there ever was in this country before. A big part of that is because local news is dying. It is on the way out. It's being bought up by these huge headphones and gutted for parts. So, you know, people don't have, uh, people in a lot of places in the United States don't have a reliable place to get information about their community and the sort of accountability mechanism that the press plays against politicians simply isn't there in you know, a a major way. So that is incredibly dangerous uh, and could cause a lot of problems in very severe ways for people living in states where their GOP is incredibly compromised. On the national level, this is kind of being played into by some of the worst actors in our political system. There are actors in our political system, like the Steve Bannons of the world, that don't value fair and open democracy. They are power-hungry people who are willing to shatter any window and break any door to get to the place they want to go or wherever their donors want to go. So a lot of that extremism, a lot of that descend into the fringe is being done and you know exasperated by these forces who think that that is going to be a ticket to power. So then where do we get the truthful information? This is a part, you know, as we're beginning to wind our hour down, I'm trying to figure out then where do we go to get accurate and truthful information? And whose responsibility is it to get out the truth? Now, here's the funny thing. It's not a left. It's not a right. It's not a Republican. It's not a Democratic ideology. Whether you're Republican or Democrat, don't you want to know the truth? If the guy is, if let's talk back, go right back to Marjorie Taylor Greene. If she's batshit crazy, what's the difference if you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, right? What's the difference if, for example, whoever's running for specific office has a background that needs to be exposed? Why is it that you can only find it on certain channels, you can't find it on other channels? You find it on certain chat rooms, you can't find it in other chat rooms. All I'm looking for, and everybody has the right to vote for whomever they want. And it's, to me, I don't care, Republican, Democrat, Independent, I I really don't care. As long as you're voting on fact, because all of the innuendo that's coming out, the lies, the misinformation that's being disseminated out there, it's so prevalent right now that nobody can really discern what's true, what's not true. And the biggest fear that I saw recently is that there are computer programs that can take your voice, my voice, and somehow superimpose your image onto somebody else's body and that they could control what comes out of your mouth. So these are all, you know, these are all programs and these are all ways that just continue to 
wreak complete havoc on our democracy. And I don't know how we're going to get past it. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, such a tough cookie to crack. But a few things I would say is that, you know, I, I am totally in agreement with you. I have conservative friends. I have, you know, liberal friends, moderate friends. I have friends who don't care about politics at all, right? But we should all be able to agree on basic facts like, was Joe Biden inaugurated the president? Yes or like that one seems easy, right? But there are people in this country that don't believe that was a real inauguration. Um, I would say that, you know, the onus, because social media has changed the news environment so much, in a way, like we are all influencers in our own networks. I'm not saying that everybody is like, you know, has a million Twitter followers or a huge YouTube subscriber, but as a community, even online, we look to each other for information, for validation. So I think that part of the onus comes on us in finding good information and putting that out if we feel like, you know, we're the type of person who wants to share information. And a good way to vet information is, uh, you know, reputation is the news value or reputation is the currency of news organizations, the big ones that are all over the globe, the Reuters, the Associated Presses of the world. They're all over the globe. They're syndicated by papers all over the world, and that's because they get it right almost all the time. So that's a good place to start. Uh, and otherwise, just looking for corroboration. I think it helps to see you know, if you come across an article in a website you've never heard of before, you know, maybe approach it with some skepticism. Maybe see if you're able to validate. What kind of proof do they offer for the claims they're making? You know, I think just a sense of skepticism, a sense of media literacy, and, you know, a collective responsibility and also a responsibility on social media companies to keep the trash off the site. Uh, you know, it's all of that plays into a factor in making sure that we have solid information going out to people because i think people can only make decisions that are as good as the information that they have available to them yeah but now i'm gonna push back on you a bit here right. because while yes i think the world of the associated press and reuters and the new york times and the washington post they generally do a really good job in trying to vet stories however i don't have to take you farther back to the fact I have never been to Prague. Right. I never paid off Russian compromats, right? I'd never entered through Germany with a kayak or on somebody's private plane and met with a bunch of Russian compromats in order to steal DNC computer information or Hillary Clinton's alleged 35,000 emails or any of the things. My father-in-law is not the largest real estate developer in Moscow. My father-in-law's actually never been to Moscow. But all of these allegations somehow showed up on all of the biggest papers, on all of the biggest um, you know, media outlets, on all of the newspapers and all of the news cycles. And it just kept perpetuating on and on and on. And talk about a disinformation campaign that as just a, a civilian, as a, you know, as a small as a small guy or one person, how do I combat that sort of behemoth coming at me 24-7 on every single station, on every single newspaper, front and center, that is completely inaccurate? And the funny thing is I have yet to see one reporter, 
I have yet to see one reporter. Actually, there was one, I believe, from uh, it was either the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal that apologized for the error. But short of that, there's so much misinformation that's going out because they're in com- they're in competition with the blogger. They're in competition with these small bloggers, and they don't want to get scooped because it's not good for business. But somewhere along the line, this entire disinformation campaign by people like this uh, Jack uh, or people like Roger Stone or people like um, Jared Kushner and others that were actually promoting misinformation. There has to be something, and I believe this wholeheartedly, there has to be something that these social media platforms can do in order to shut it down. And I believe that the newspapers have, and the, and the television stations, they all have a bigger responsibility to ensure that what they're putting out there is accurate. Yeah, I agree with that because like those stories, like uh, about you going to Prague or whatever, like uh, we know now that that was bullshit, right? Uh, but at the time that, you know, the sourcing on that story probably met every, you know, ethical, standard of the paper well it was uh, it did yeah so it would it did so it, it you know a part of that is also going to be a re-evaluation of these legacy newsrooms you know that have built their reputation on getting it right most of the time and, and trying to think about how in this new digital media environment like how that challenges the standard procedures right because you know if enough anonymous sources from the government run to these reporters on background there's probably a decent chance they can get something published even if it's total bullshit and i think there's got to be you you know there's got to be a thought of like what makes the washington post better than the blogger and i think unless the priority is like we get it right no matter what that ultimately you know I, I mean, part of the reason we're in this mess to begin with, right, is that people have lost trust in, you know, these big media sources and their institutions. And unless they're transparent and open and honest with the way they're conducting themselves, you know, we're not going to repair that trust. And if we don't repair that trust, it's going to be way harder to get ourselves out of this, uh, you know, out of this set of problems than it should be. You know, so Jared, is we're now coming to the end I want to ask you one final question because it, of course, deals with this whole misinformation, disinformation set of questioning. But can you explain to my listeners the origins of message boards like 4chan from Japanese uh, image boards in the 1980s and how they have proven influential in the spread of hate and conspiracy in 2020? Yeah, image boards have been around uh, for a long time. They were some of the earliest fixtures on the internet uh they were a place you could go they were as their name suggests image image centric you didn't have to identify yourself you didn't have to sign your name to anything the same way that you know a thumb board in a neighborhood you know anybody could theoretically walk up and pin a piece of paper to it it's kind of the same idea with these chan forum boards over the years, uh, and I would say probably one of the major turns was around like 2014, a lot of these chans, which have kind of always prided themselves on being counterculture to whatever mainstream orthodoxy is, really, really leaned into these, you know, hate and conspiratorial beliefs. They 
became these major sources and major founts of just the craziest conspiracy theories you could think of, uh, of racism, of smear campaigns and attacks. And, you know, really the counterculture, the, the mainstream culture, which was, you know, trying to reprioritize conversations about inclusion, diversity, that sort of thing. The counterculture response to that was just to like barrel down and get as hateful and disgusting as possible. So, you know, in the lead up to 2020, I think that, you know, a, a lot of, you know, this barrel towards hate and conspiracy was something that was embraced by a lot of uh, early like Trump world online influencers. Uh, the 4chan culture played like a fairly large, uh, you know, influence in the Trump campaign. If you remember, Trump tweeted that picture of him as a Pepe the Frog. That's a you know, that's a 4chan signature right there. And it's, uh, you know, they sourced that photo of Hillary Clinton uh, that had like the Star of David on it that was criticized for being anti-Semitic. That's another like 4chan joint. So, you know, these boards have always just been like totally crazy. One of the Wild West portions of the internet. But they were kind of, ushered into influence and to discussion. And I think that, you know, they're almost, I don't want to say mainstreaming, but like kind of almost like mainstreaming to where a lot of people kind of know what you're talking about. If you say 4chan now, uh, has given these boards a lot of power and that's a place that you really don't want to have a lot of power in the conversation. Yeah, they do. They have a tremendous amount of power and that power is dangerous Right, because because anybody can go on these forums. You don't have to put your name there. You can post anything you want. Doesn't matter if it's just like five hundred racial slurs back to back. You can just post it there and leave, and no one knows any better. So they become a vector for some of the worst actors in our society to go there and post hate, conspiracy, and you know I would not be surprised whatsoever to learn that any sort of enemies of the United States, whether you know foreign intelligence or otherwise view the chance as a place to go dump information and try to get it into the bloodstream. Absolutely. Well, again, Jared, let me thank you for the conversation. You know, each time, as I was saying, each time I speak to guests, I learn something more and more. I get more and more nervous about the future of this country and how hard it's going to be under this Biden administration to undo the divisiveness, the hatred, and really the sort of um, lack of empathy that Trump brought to this country. But I do have faith in, you know, in the president, in President Biden and Kamala Harris. And I believe it's going to take us some time. But I think um, ultimately people will realize it's the better way to want to live. And it's what America stands for. And I, again, just want to thank you for your time today and for sharing your thoughts and your views with my listeners. Well, thanks for having me. I am, although my topic of expertise means that I'm often the bearer of bad news. Uh, I also, you know, share that same optimism that if we, you know, kind of collectively decide and work towards a brighter future, it is possible. Well, thanks again, Jared. And now for today's mea culpa. In speaking to Jared Holt today and listening as he described the litany of toxic filth that pollutes our digital channels, 
it's clear that we need some type of legislation to curb the power of these platforms. Forget for a moment that Facebook and Twitter, both ruled by incredibly rich young men, are like nation states unto themselves and wield power on par with small countries. It's the power they have right now to spread hate and not just influence an election, but propagate misinformation and foment violence on a grand scale. Until now, they have done little to police the problem, throwing up their hands and shrugging as if the issue were some philosophical problem they were too busy to solve. But with each day comes more evidence that these platforms aren't just potentially dangerous, but are leading to a complete and total disintegration of rational discourse and creation of an alternate reality inhabited by millions with its own economy and marketplace of ideas whose goal is the overthrow of our own civil society. This is no longer the realm of science fiction, but something that is happening here and now. January 6th was the first violent salvo in what I see as a wider insurrection as these forces of extremism, rather than being chastened, are more emboldened than ever. Our ability to stem the power and influence of these platforms and force the companies themselves to clean up what they have wrought is a crucial first step in what needs to be an ongoing campaign to stem the tide of this digital terrorism before it swallows us whole. And thanks for listening. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up, in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen. Produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick, and executive producer Jared Gustav. And it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please stay tuned as we focus on the changing political moment and this unprecedented transfer of power. I'll be with you every step of the way. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth. insurance with geico is so easy your neighbors are probably already doing it but who they may drop little hints like beautiful day out even more beautiful since we saved by bundling our home and car insurance with geico or yard work is hard much harder than bundling with geico which was easy or it may be even subtler like speaking of burgers we bundled our home and car insurance with geico and saved a bunch of money bundling is easy with geico just ask your neighbors. And now it's Geico's Motorcycle Rules of the Road. Before you ride, make sure your mirrors are clean and adjusted properly. And if you're going on a group ride, make sure the lead biker knows where they're going. Uh, Ed, quick question. Where are you taking us? Oh, I have no idea. What, am I the leader? <laughs> because I was uh, following that dude with the red helmet. Where? Where is he? 
And the rule to saving on motorcycle insurance is, in 15 minutes, GEICO could save you 15% or more.